The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Hey, welcome to the show. So happy you're tuning in. As always, to Dose of Leadership, I really do appreciate your support. Hey, before I introduce my guest, Kevin Oaks, I want to talk to you about an amazing opportunity for 2021. I'm reopening my doors to the Dose of Leadership University. I'm looking for 50 new members this year. I started the Dose of Leadership University exactly one year ago with um, looking for 30 founding members, which I found, and then I closed the doors. And the whole idea was to develop this community, an impactful and interactive community where people can experience personal and professional development within this community of like-minded leaders, people who are searching for significance and interacting, creating a level of accountability that's going to allow all of us to grow into the kind of leaders that we were called to be. That was the mission and the purpose of the group. And it's been an amazing experience this last 12 months. It was great to do, particularly during 2020, the year of 2020, with all the challenges that presented itself, to do life with these 30 founding members and get the encouragement, get the insight of different perspectives of so many different people with different life experiences, seeking the wisdom from all types of leaders with various business backgrounds, various industries, various life experiences, and getting that encouragement and support because leadership can't be done by itself. You have to do it with other people. You just have to. And it was great to bring real-life leadership challenges to this group. And we meet twice a month live via Mastermind on Saturday mornings for an hour and a half, and we bring these real-life challenges to each other and watch this diverse group help solve and bring real-life solutions to these, these challenges. And that's the point, this encouragement, this insight, this pushing each other into the growth zone because you have to be intentional about it and introducing this level of accountability that leads to action and action leads to achievement, and this accountability makes all of us become better leaders. And we do it, like I said, through this Mastermind access. But you're going to have Access to me if you join this group 24-7, 365 via email, via text, via phone. But not only me, out of these 30 founding members, I've got what I call the Hardcore 15. 15 of these founding members who've agreed to be mentors. And these are people with, again, varying professional and life experiences, entrepreneurial experiences. You can go to doseofleadership.com university and you can meet the mentors and see who's agreed to help me grow this community, to expand it beyond what I even thought was possible. And so I'm excited to see where this can go. And if you're, it sounds like this is something that is for you, again, go to doseofleadership.com slash university. You can't plop down a credit card. You got to enroll. You got to sign up for an interview and talk with me and one of my mentors and see if this would be the right fit for you. It's unique access to me, unique access to my entire community of mentors, but you're also going to get to interact with my vast network. I've interviewed almost 500 people on this show, CEOs, thought leaders, entertainers. And at various times throughout the year, I bring on a special guest, someone I've interviewed on the show, into one of our live sessions. So you get to interact with the people that I bring on this show. Nobody else is offering this type of opportunity. No one is offering this type of personal access that's offering leadership development and personal growth. 
And so go check it out. Meet the mentors. Go watch their video testimonials. See how it's impacted their lives. See if this might be a good fit for you. It'll send me an email and then we can reach out and we can set up a time where we can talk. So go to dosaleadership.com slash university to learn more. All right. So excited about today's guest, Kevin Oaks. He's the author of this fantastic book called Culture Renovation, A Blueprint for Action. And if you're a junkie about culture like I am, it's one of my favorite topics. I'm fascinated by the, the topic of culture. And he's the CEO and co-founder of a group called I4CP. It's one of the leading authorities on uh, human capital. He's a frequent author and international keynote speaker on the next practices in human capital and works with businesses and HR executives and all over the world. He's considered one of the foremost experts on organizational culture. And this book, I got to tell you, it was one of the best books. I think it is the best book I've read about culture, to be quite honest. And it's definitely going on my easy access bookshelf to become an arrow in my quiver and a a go-to when we're talking about culture. You're really going to enjoy this conversation. So Kevin Oaks is his name. The business is I4CP. Go to the show notes, click on the link to learn more about him and his website at culturerenovation.com. And uh, you're really going to enjoy this conversation. All right, thanks for being a supporter of this show. And let's get on with our conversation with Kevin Oaks here on Dose Leadership. Kevin Oaks on Dose of Leadership. Welcome to the show, my friend. Thank you, Richard. Glad to be here. Yeah, you know, I love talking about culture. It's one of my favorite topics, to be quite honest. And you got to—you said some really insightful things out of the gate. One thing when I was reading your the book was, and I've used that word, that trans, transformation or transforms, kind kind of become kind of a buzzword, right? Yeah. And you pointed out that you know what, we're really not all the great culture, the people who change their cultures, you really don't transform anything. I mean, it's, it's really about a renovation. It's kind of like the same thing. I don't transform my house. I renovate my house, right? So I, I love that right out of the gate. That was, I knew this was going to be a great book when I read that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. We um, did a research study, that, which is the predecessor to the book. And a lot of the data in the book is from this original study that we did a little over a year ago. And as we got into the study, and I was authoring uh, quite a bit of it along with some other people on my research team, it just dawned on me one night as we're looking at some of the case studies, none of these companies are transforming yeah. themselves. You know, They're not starting from scratch, right? They're, right. What they're really trying to do is uh, take what made them great companies to begin with, you know, build around those unique or hard to replace uh, aspects, much like you would do in a house, and renovate for the future. And probably the... Um, the quote that I like the best is from the CEO of F5 Networks, uh, Francois Locodona, a really interesting guy. He said, you know, Kevin, when I came in as a new CEO to F5, I wasn't using the term renovation, but that's exactly what I was trying to do. Because yeah. I thought it would be really dismissive to the workforce that I'm inheriting to imply that, you know, everything that they've done up to this point until my arrival, you know, we're going to throw away and start all over again and start from scratch. And I think that's what happens in a lot of new CEO situations where the new CEO comes in and it's <clears throat> oftentimes it's because something's gone wrong in the organization, but it's, it's really easy to sort of uh, be dismissive and blame, you know, all the work that was, that happened in the past. You're not going to get the workforce to go along with you uh, if you're trying to change that culture. So renovation, I think has a nice, you know, softer tone to it that acknowledges that and allows you to, you know, move ahead and, and plan for the future. I like it. And I think it, it's, it's a subtle, but I think it's subtle, but it's more powerful because the, the word transform, I mean, again, it's almost like a, a buzzworthy, worthy term now. Right. It can just seem so overwhelming. Yeah. We're going to transform what we've done. And, 
and it's just so overwhelming. And it's like, well, what does that even mean? You know, and I, I don't really transform my life. I just kind of tweak it and renovate. You know, it's, I, I like that. I think it's subtle, but I think it's a little more powerful to be quite honest, because it, it, it does, as you said, it allows me just like a renovation. I keep, I still got the bones There's something good about I'm staying here. I'm not leaving. And that's so I'm renovating it. So there's, there's, I want to hang on to the good stuff or, or build upon what made it great in the first place. Right. Exactly. Exactly. I like, so how did you, how did culture, how did this become your thing? I mean, how did you kind of find yourself getting passionate about organizational culture, renovating new cultures and the importance of it? I mean, I, both you and I agree. There's nothing more important, I think, than, than culture. You have one, whether you like it or not. But so, how, but how did you get involved in it? So I've um, I've been a serial entrepreneur most of my career and CEO most of my career, and I've always um, noticed the importance and impact that culture can have yeah. on the financial um, success or, or lack thereof of an organization. And I'm a big believer that the culture really does dictate the financial success. It's not mm-hmm. the other way around. It's yeah. not, you know suddenly find yourself, you know, wildly successful financially. And then the culture, you know, is good because of it. Um, but I, uh, I the, the company that I started and run today is one of the leading HR research firms uh, in the world. We do more HR research than anyone on the planet. And as we started looking at what uh, culture means for organizations and how can organizations really change cultures over time, uh, I got very engaged because I've just experienced so many different cultures with the companies I walk into. And I start out the book talking about two iconic Silicon Valley companies mm-hmm. that I visited back in 2009, right? You know, mm-hmm. during the, you know, 08, 09 financial crisis. And the first company I walked into, you know, it was just, you could just kind of feel it as soon as you got in there. Uh, it was a cold, very formal culture. Uh, the people I met with were just depressed. You could see it, you know, in the in the Cubeville, uh, the sea of cubes that were out there. Just everybody was trying to keep their head low and uh, go unnoticed. And there was just this low murmur and nobody said hello to anybody. in there. I mean, it was just you could just sort of feel it when you're in there. But then, you know, as I explored the company a little bit further, it was very clear that they had been through a lot of management changes, a lot of different uh, strategic directions, and they were just beaten down. Yeah. So I walked out of there and my next meeting in Silicon Valley was with a a completely different company. Uh, Everybody was upbeat. The people I talked to were excited about the future. They were in line with the CEO's vision and, uh, you know, they couldn't be more optimistic, you know, about what uh, things were going to look like going forward. And so I often, I tell this story and I often ask audiences, who do you think the two companies were? And uh, the first one is HP. And uh, if anybody knows anything about Hewlett Packard, they've undergone a lot of changes. Mm-hmm. They've split into a couple different companies now, but you know it's been a rough road for Hewlett Packard, uh, you know, over the last twenty years or so. And the second company was Apple, and uh, you know, obviously we all know about Apple's success. But I, I show before I ask people that question, I usually show a stock chart and say, here's what would have happened had I invested in each one of these companies <laughs> the day I walked out the door, right? And my HP investment is basically flat, zero, and then my Apple investment is through the roof. And, you know, it's a it's a way to showcase, you know, how culture, I think, really does impact financial performance. Um, but, you know, how it's just, you, you know, you can walk into companies that, that are literally right down the road from each other, and they can have wildly different cultures. Yeah, it's it's almost, I always find it amazing, or it's even weird to me that 
And maybe HP, there are people that understood the importance of culture when it was going on. But I mean, and I've worked for some dysfunctional organizations and I've worked for some great organizations, you know, we, like all of us have, right? We've all seen it. We've seen the good and the bad. Why this intentionality behind culture is an embrace kind of escapes me. And maybe it's because I'm a leadership junkie and I, and I eat this stuff up. But I mean, if you could kind of sum it up, why is it? What do you think, you know, what is it that, that makes people ignore the importance of culture, do you think? Yeah, it still happens to this day, although I think there's more recognition of the importance of culture. Um, but there's a lot of CEOs, there's a lot of companies that think culture is kind of fluffy and esoteric. Yeah. Uh, it's not really my thing. You know, I'm, I'm a business guy and, you know, it's uh, makes me nervous. <laughs> you know, those are those are all reasons why I don't think culture is embraced by a lot of um, you know, senior teams and why companies aren't more intentional around culture. You know, there's also a notion that culture change is either hard or impossible. And, yeah. uh, and uh, I will give you that it's hard. You know, it's not, it's not an easy In fact, our research shows that um, only 15%, so 1-5% of companies that set out to change their culture have a lot of success in doing so. Um, the majority yeah. of companies that, you know, set out to do this, they they don't uh, have much success in doing so. Um, but if you take a, a measured approach and a planful approach to it, as we lay out in the book, um, you can have success. And I, I also start out the book talking about Microsoft quite a bit, mm-hmm. uh, because I think Microsoft is example 1A of how you change a culture. What Satya Nadella has done going into that organization uh, is nothing short of remarkable. Uh, he and the HR team, uh, have engineered a completely different culture than before he was CEO. And you see it in the results. He was able to vault yeah. the company, the most valuable company in the world. Right now, I think they're number two behind Apple, but it doesn't matter. You know, they, they're wildly successful. And so much of it is because he created a cooperative attitude inside the organization. They adopted this uh, concept of growth mindset inside the company where uh, you know, development of people and, and learning were valued. And, and Satya has been very vocal saying, I want a company of learn-it-alls, not know-it-alls. And that was very like impactful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very impactful for the company because uh, prior to that, uh, they really valued intelligence. Uh, they really valued individuals who had knowledge. And so knowledge was power. And a lot of these people held their knowledge to make themselves more powerful which you see all the time, but it's very detrimental to a company when you have that, right? It, you move Absolutely. slowly, you're bureaucratic. And, you know, when you have a company where you, you reward and recognize knowledge sharing and adopt an attitude that knowledge sharing is power, uh, you have a much more agile organization, one that's nimble, one that moves quickly, uh, and one where employees are, you know, very interested in being cooperative with each, with each other. So it's, uh, you know, it's a, it's a marked difference from, uh, the previous culture that they had. And, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I like using them as an example, because even though they weren't following my 18 steps that I outlined in the, in the book, uh, to their knowledge, they did a lot of those steps. I like, yeah, I like, yeah, I need to study them more. Cause you're right. I get on the periphery. I've been looking at Microsoft, but you're absolutely right. They really have kind of massively renovated, almost said transformed there, but they massively have renovated their culture. Uh, it's starkly different than it was 25 years ago, starkly different. And you're absolutely right. I love the fact how much of it, and I haven't studied the CEO all that much, but how much of it 
has he talked about intentional, you know, being intentional about the culture? I mean, obviously he has, but I mean, I haven't studied him like you have. How intentional was he about culture? Was that like his number one priority? Yeah, very, very intentional. Uh, in fact, in the very first shareholder meeting that he had, he said, our ability to, to change our culture is going to be the biggest predictor of our financial success. Nice. I'm paraphrasing. I think he yeah. used slightly different words, but it's, that's essentially what he said. And he, um, he talks about, he has a great book called Hit Refresh, uh, which I recommend. And it was one of the very first things he did. He, he, he partnered with his head of HR, uh, Kathleen Hogan, and said, look, we have to change the culture of the organization. Uh, and that's, that's a lesson that we talk about in the book. Uh, it's really hard to change an organization's culture if the CEO and senior team aren't on board and, yeah. and 100% supportive behind it, right? Um, so the best the best way to do this is it's got to be CEO led, uh, and he from the start um, just began uh, communicating those messages and getting the workforce on board with what he envisioned for the future going forward. He didn't talk too much about the past, and I talk about that in the book too. There's a lot of CEOs who come in and you know they they talk a lot about the past. He he acknowledged it, but he wanted to really paint a vision for what the future would look like. And, um, and the, and the employees agree and they bought, they've bought into it. And, you know, I don't live too far away from Microsoft's campus, but boy, is it a different environment these days? You know, when I would go there, uh, 10 years ago, uh, everybody was complaining and, yeah. uh, you know, kind of complaining about each other, complaining about the company. And, and today they just have a lot of optimism for the future. Yeah. It speaks to the, the power of, you know, how much influence, communicating and I always use the term maniacal communication. I've said it on the show time and time again. I don't and I don't even maybe maniacal isn't even the strong enough word, but you get my my point of how important it is for that senior leadership to maniacally communicate that. And almost every it, it has to be in, in everything they do, whether obviously with formal communication, but even in just the casual conversations of us bumping into each other in the hall, all of that has to be ingrained somehow of where you're just constant. I don't think you can over-communicate. I think it's impossible to over-communicate where we're taking the ship and why it's heading that way. Yeah, I would totally agree. And, you know, during the pandemic, probably even more so, mm-hmm. I think, um, you know, a lot of CEOs and a lot of leaders have recognized that they need to communicate more than they ever were before um, and show a level of empathy that they probably didn't show before. Yeah, that's a good, yeah. You know, we've, we've seen that in many companies that, we, you know, we've asked them, hey, has your culture changed? during the pandemic. And most will say, yeah, it, it has changed. Uh, but the good news is most will say it's actually changed for the better uh, versus, you know, more negative. And they, they're saying that because leadership has showed more empathy uh, and more flexibility than they had previously. But also we're all jettisoned into each other's homes on a you know, daily basis <laughs> right. through Zoom, right? And you're seeing you know, kitchens and living rooms that you've never seen before. <laughs> dogs you're barking, seeing, kids running in there. Yeah, everything. <laughs> dogs. And, you know, you're also recognizing the full person from your coworker versus just the business persona. Yeah. You know, maybe people have elder care responsibilities, what, what have you. And so I think a lot of workers today have a better appreciation for their coworkers. They have a better appreciation for their leaders as a result of that communication. And I think the trick 
as we start to ease out of the pandemic is how do we keep that going? Because it's been very, um, I think, positive for a lot of companies. You're right. I didn't ever really thought about that until you brought that up, but you're absolutely right. I mean, it, I think it's a positive to your point is, is it's introduced the human connection, which gets lost a lot. And for whatever reason, you know, which is crazy to me because I th- it's, we're so wired for that intuitiveness, just like you pointed out in the book, you can walk into an organization and that that resonance that's coming off of that culture, you, you intuitively pick up. And so I think if anything, if, if we can, to your point, continue this level of authenticity and transparency, which feeds into the emotional quotient side, the empathy side of, of leadership, I think that's a win, you know, for sure. I like how you laid the book out where you got the 18 steps and you, three sections, basically, the, the, or phases, rather, is a better word, where you got the plan, the build, and the maintain. I like, too, how you open up uh, on the, the plan phase, or step one, is this comprehensive listening strategy. That was something refreshing to read. Explain that to me, and why is that the first step? Yeah, that was a very common step among companies that had success in changing their culture. Because here's what happens, Richard. Uh, a lot of executive teams, uh, a lot of leaders think they know what the culture is right. all about, and they're generally wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, they just don't, you know, things get get filtered the higher up you go. And they just don't understand what the employee sentiment is, you know, really at the, at the ground level. And so the listening strategy is designed to, over time, really give you a comprehensive view of what employee sentiment is through a number of different channels. Uh, we say pretty emphatically in the book that the annual employee engagement survey is a <laughs> false proxy for what your culture so it's a piece of data. You can use it. Um, that's fine. But, uh, you know, it's a very infrequent survey and it's a point in time. And what most organizations are doing today are weekly, sometimes even daily pulse surveys of their workforce. Um, and it might sound, you know, you might groan when you say, oh, I don't want to do a daily survey. But, uh, you know, some companies are just doing one question a day, like Amazon's doing this. They, um, before you log on, um, you know, get started in the morning, you answer the question. And in a way, that becomes habit and you avoid survey fatigue because of that. But they use that question very strategically. My, my favorite that I listed in the book is, is your manager a simplifier or a complexifier? <laughs> That's and, uh, great. Yeah, I think that causes a lot of managers and leaders of people. To, and so they use those questions uh, to try to you know, initiate some conversation inside the organization, but they're also gathering really good data over time. And as part of that listening strategy, we talk about um, some newer technologies. So natural language processing is a way to take written uh, data. And a lot of surveys do this. You, you have open-ended questions, right, where you let your employees write whatever they want. Well, if you have a lot of employees, it's pretty laborious to read right. through all of the comments. And correctly categorize them. And a lot of times we categorize them in really unhelpful terms, you know, communication, uh, leadership, you know, and, you know, you just don't get, you don't glean a lot from that. And so today there are um, several tools out there that use artificial intelligence and natural language processing to analyze those written comments and synthesize them into categories that are helpful for you to really understand what the employee sentiment is. In fact, a lot of companies are using external social sites like a glass door or mm-hmm. indeed where people are you know putting comments about the company 
and gathering that data too into the sentiment. Now, so, you know, a lot of times that those comments are pretty uh, caustic comments, right? There, you know, it's a lot of disgruntled ex-employees kind of thing. But there's usually slivers of truth in those comments, and so it's important to 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 get a sense of what's being said out there because, frankly, that's what candidates are reading. You know, if you're going to go right. apply to a company and you're thinking about joining a company. Oh, let me go see what they're what's being said about this company out in Glassdoor. It's important for you know other. It's important for management to know what's being said, but it also gives you insight into your organizational culture. So that that comprehensive listening strategy is is step number one. You know to just really understand what's happening. Yeah, I like those. I like those points, and I love how you said about the the annual survey, which and I think we we become dependent upon because we don't know what else to do. I I, I agree with you. Okay, we can we can do it, but it's a data point. It's not a be all end all. And realize that how much of it, you know, are we just scratching the surface? Nine times out of ten, you, my experience, you're just kind of scratching the surface. And just like the glass door on the other end of the spectrum, you can get slivers of truth out of both of them. But it's it's what what else can we do? Is what I'm really interested in. To your point, you know, I like the the daily survey, the example that Amazon make. The challenge though is like, what are the right questions? Because sometimes they get. And to your point, we, we, it becomes too complex. So I like the simplification example you gave of Amazon. How much of it do you think we need to, because I still think, and from my experience of like, particularly in the middle and below, or the, what I call the engine of the organization where things really are happening, it is getting that middle and below to really understand how much influence and impact they can have in the organization. And I think somehow if we can train our middle managers, because it, it just takes a, a lot of, and that's where the leadership comes in, a lot of what I call grunt work of trying to get that authenticity out of their, their folks. I mean, that's a challenge. I mean, from an HR perspective, what, what do you think when you hear me saying these things? Well, it reminds me of another step uh, as part of this process, and it's called establish a co-creation mindset. Yeah. And even though culture change is leader-led, uh, you need to pretty quickly make sure that you get the, you know, the people inside the organization uh, having input, um, having contributions to that culture change and being on board uh, with it. And that's what I mean by co-creation mindset. We, um, we talk a lot about the fact that uh, successful companies have established a, a number of culture ambassadors inside the yes. organization. Um, and these are people that are influential, whose opinions are sought out, uh, you know, where a lot of workflow emanates through. And you want them on board with what you're trying to create from a culture perspective, because they're going to end up making it happen. Absolutely. You know, throughout the organization. The problem is a lot of people, a lot of senior teams, a lot of leaders, they don't know who those people are. And so we're big proponents of a science called organizational network analysis, uh, which is a way to uncover the influencers and the energizers inside the organization. And those are oftentimes the same people, but they can sometimes be a little bit different. Influencers are people who have uh, the respect of a lot of folks. And, you know, again, if you think about any company you've ever worked with, Richard, there are just these go-to people that make it happen, right? And that's what you just go to time and time again. Well, those people aren't always high on the hierarchy, right? And that's why they kind of fly under the radar sometimes. In fact, sometimes those people are introverts. They're not extroverts. I agree with you 100%. Yep. You know, it's just not obvious, you know, who those people are. Uh, and so organizational network analysis analyzes communication flow and workflow in the organization and also uses surveying techniques 
to ask people who are those go-to people so you can hone in and make them culture ambassadors. But we also talk about energizers. And, you know, these are, these are people that when you leave a conversation with them, you feel energized, right? right. You feel you know, pumped up. Whereas, you know, there are the opposite, you know, you have a conversation with somebody, it's like Darth Vader, they just suck the life out of you, right? And you, yeah. you know, you walk out dejected. So it's important to know who those people are too, inside the organization. But, um, you know, getting those people on board as a culture ambassador to carry forward uh, what you're trying to do is such a critical part of this whole step. I, I, such a huge fan of all of that. I, I got, always got some mileage uh, when I was trying to do the things that we're talking about here of identifying those, whatever you want to call them, the cliche diamond in the rough or the kind of the, they don't even see it in themselves, right? And I'd pull them in there. And when I started using words like, I need you as my ambassador, I need you as, you know, I see this in you. I, I saw this energy and I, I, I got a lot of success out of that, you know, so I'm a huge proponent of that. And I do think that's one of the obligations we have as leaders, particularly mid-level and below, is identifying those kind of... um real influencers within the organization, right, that, that, that are spread throughout the entire organization, particularly in the middle and below, right? I, I do think that's one of our obligations, particularly if we're talking about having an impactful culture. I love that. I love everything about your book, by the way. It is, I, I love how it's laid out. I love the steps. I can't agree more. It, to me, it speaks to, I always talk about the decentralization. I'm, I'm a big proponent of uh, decentralized leadership authority, you know, spreading the leadership authority throughout the entire organization, getting everyone to act, they can act like leaders at varying degrees of accountability. And where the middle and below, you know, become these empowered people of execution. And the, and the senior leadership is more focused on the communication aspect of it, right? And I get a lot of that out of, of what you're talking about in this book. Am, am I, does that resonate with you when I'm saying that? Am I hitting yeah, it? Right? For yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's, um, you know, there, there's a lot, a lot of things that um, we could talk about in, in regard to that. You, you're kind of reminding me of the way I run my own company, though, um, when you say that. I um, One of the most impactful books I read early on in my career was around open book management. And um, I've always felt that this is not only a constructive way to run a company, but frankly, an easy way to run a company where you, in, you, you make sure at all levels within the organization, uh, they know all aspects of your financials. Absolutely, and we do this. We do this in my company once a month. Go over everything. We, we've had to teach people what EBITDA means, and uh, you know, we go over how we're doing versus plan. But to me, that instills an ownership mentality throughout right. the organization. In my company, they are they are all owners. They all have you know equity in the company. But you know, I I want them to have that mindset. Right? Uh, it's not just my problem and, yeah. and what the, you know, how we're doing financially. I want, I want all of them to own that problem and own the success. And, you know, as we look at our, our success against our plan, uh, you know, I want them to be extremely aware of how we're doing uh, and what needs to be done going forward. So I'm a, that open book management aspect is uh, one that I, I think a lot of particularly small companies could really benefit from. Absolutely. Opening up the kimono. And sharing, like you said, everything. It's like it's kind of like the mindset, and I got this from the Marine Corps, where it was this kind of, I open the kimono, I, sh- I, you know, it's all the way down the line. It was like I'm teaching you to take my job. Now they would say it's because of, of the necessity of, okay, like if I get knocked out of the fight, then you need to know what I'm doing. So there's no, there's never this knowledge is power holding close to the chest type thing. Knowledge is power, but I'm going to share that with you, right? It's it's the open the kimono thing and show everything. 
I agree with you 100%. I mean, because it's particularly when you're dealt with a crisis or a problem, because there seems to be this natural tendency as leaders, I think I see like, well, I want to protect my people from the bad news, or I want to protect my people from the reality. Well, we, this is proprietary information. I can't let everybody know what's going on. I mean, again, you can do it smartly where you're saying, hey, this is this is the financial situation. That's not pretty. This is what I'm struggling with as a leader right now. I, I, I can't solve this. I need your help. Now you've just empowered it. You know, now they've become part of the solution is what I heard you say. And the, there's so much power in that. I like to, in the, um, the defined desired behaviors, I always thought that that was, which is still in phase one there. I, I think that was your um, uh, fourth yeah. or fifth step, fourth step, I think. Fourth step, yeah. I can't agree with you more. I, I got a lot of mileage out of that too. When I took the time to sit down and say, okay, look, th- these are my expectations. And I had it, you know, and I would go through them. It made things so much easier from a cultural perspective when things got sideways or somebody veered off, I could go, okay, this is what we agreed to. Here it is. Explain to me what you did fits into this, right? That's the yeah. power of that. Yeah, for sure. It's important to identify those, um, but also to teach leaders inside the organization what are those desired behaviors, exactly. and those obviously should be in line with your purpose and your values. Uh, and then the most important thing is to walk the talk, right? To to exhibit those on a mm-hmm. daily basis. Uh, there's nothing more detrimental to a company to you know have a bunch of values, have a purpose, you know, in PowerPoint slides, but leaders don't actually do that, right? They they operate <laughs> and act differently. And, um, you know, we've all seen that happen many times, yeah. but employees will emulate what the leaders do. And uh, so it's important to, you know, make sure that you are walking the talk. Yeah, that inconsistency, I think. I, every challenge that I've come across in both military and the corporate and in the consulting side of the house, when I've dealt with some major dysfunctions in organizations, it was because of that inconsistency. Because that inconsistency breeds that fear, that uncertainty. And, you know, like, and then going back to those employee surveys, every employee survey with every organization that I've been in or even coached in, it's, there's always that lack. It's, you know, well, my managers say one thing, but they do another, right? It's that whole do as I say, not as I do epidemic that we're faced with. I love it, man. So what about communicating when you go into the, the build phase and the clearly communicate the changes coming, which talk to me a little bit about that, because I don't think people fully appreciate how difficult that is. Well, it kind of goes back to what we were saying earlier, just, you know, your ability to um, constantly and consistently communicate um, about the change and why the change, you know, is necessary and what the vision is for the future. Those were all things that highly successful companies did with their culture. Uh, And there are different ways that people communicate um, about that. You know, uh, later in the book, I talk about the importance of stories. um, And uh, stories are... Uh, you know, in, in most successful companies, you'll find that they are very good storytellers and they have some, you know, so, sort of historical stories and, uh, you know, just diamond stories that they always refer to inside the organization. And typically those stories will give you a clue into the culture of the company. Uh, our brain lights up when we hear stories, right? And we remember stories a lot better than anything else. And uh, so I talk about how some companies have utilized those stories to really uh, propagate the culture that they want going forward. And what goes along with stories are symbols. Um, And there's a number of organizations that have used physical symbols as a sort of a mental shortcut to what the story is. For example, Booz Allen Hamilton has five values uh, 
inside their organization. And they've literally written these values in stone and they hand out these little stones with (laughs) each one has a, a value on it to people who have exhibited that value. And it's very ceremonial. It's not easy to get one of these stones, but, uh, they, you know, they, the employees will proudly display these on their desk um, because, you know, it is somewhat rare to get them, but it's just a way for them to constantly, you know, transmit their, their values. Or I, you know, I talked about another company, a little bit smaller company, but it's a sports marketing company called BDA, where the CEO has adopted the Winnie the Pooh character Tigger um, as their mascot internally. And, you know, the reason they came up with Tigger is, you know, Tigger's not necessarily the brightest uh, cat in the forest, but he's, he's always optimistic, right? And he's always energetic and he's got a spirit. You know, if Piglet's lost, we're going to go find him. Right. Uh, if somebody's, you know, feeling down, we're going to cheer him up. And they want that Tigger spirit throughout their organization. So they have lots of stuffed Tiggers that they hand out to people who, you know, uh, showcase that attitude. And once a year, they hand out sort of this life-size Tigger to, uh, you know, the person inside the organization that uh, exhibits that attitude the most. Those things, they work. And he says, you know, I've been doing this for a long time. It can seem really corny. You know, here I am, a successful CEO, and I got this stuffed Tigger with me all the time. (laughs) But it, you know, if you buy into it, it absolutely works. And he, he's the biggest tigger they have inside that organization. Mm-hmm. I love that. I, I love those type of things. And to see that I'm a big proponent of those too, that we did that a lot in the, in the military, in the Marine Corps, right? You know, either through coins or through a baton or through things that were unique to the squadron or what, I mean, you know, it was a kind of a thing of pride to have it on your desk for the month if they, you were the guy that got this thing or whatever, right? Yeah, those things go a long way, right? And it, it kind of builds people together and speaks to the uniqueness of your culture. You're like, you know, no one else does a Tigger like that, right? They're probably the only ones that does that, right? And so that makes it right. fun and unique. And yeah, I love all that. What else about uh, when you get in the maintain side, which is I can see all the, the challenges. To me, it's like, how do you, 15% success rate makes it overwhelming. Ah, oh, crap, what's even the point? You know, let's just put our nose down and just start driving numbers. And what do we yeah. do? Well, for, before, oh. before you do that, I, let me, I was going to ask this. I almost, I almost forgot this. How do we know, and I find this a very difficult question to answer. How do we know what success looks like, right? Before we get to the maintain side, I can never get, even when I've been coaching, consulting, and I always ask this question, like, how do we know we're going to be successful? It's very hard to get that out of people. What do you say to that? So that's a step in the uh, plan phase mm-hmm. uh, to determine how your progress will be measured, monitored, and reported. Uh, and, we, you know, there was a startling statistic in the research that two-thirds of the successful companies did that up front. They determined how this was going to be measured, monitored, and reported. Ninety percent of the companies who were unsuccessful skipped that. They didn't do. Wow. They didn't do it. So <laughs> I think it's a very important step. And it, you know, I, I talk a lot about that about the 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 um, things you want to measure, and then how you want to measure mm-hmm. um, your success going forward. Um, the things that people measure can can vary, and there's no one measurement to use. In fact, you usually have to use a variety of measurements to see if you're making progress. Um, I was just talking about this with a group of uh, heads of HR just uh, earlier today, Uh, but there's one metric called employee net promoter score, ENPS. It's just like customer NPS. 
and you're asking your employees, would you recommend this as a place to work? Mm. All right. So that's a good barometer um, for how your employees are feeling, particularly if you're tracking it over time. Uh, I would also look at that social sentiment that we talked about and what's happening with that social sentiment over time. And if you're you know, looking at specific things like inclusion is a big one these days, you know, are your inclusion metrics increasing over time? You can look at just some core metrics too, though. Attri- you know, unwanted attrition, yeah. Uh, att- you know, attrition of high-performing employee uh, or high-potential employees, I should say. Um, you know, those are things that should be going down if your culture is improving. How many rehires do you have? You know, that will go up um, as your culture improves. Uh, and then certainly financial metrics. You know, we talked about Microsoft earlier, and that's all, all you need sometimes is to, you know, show that this has made a huge impact just because of the the business success that we're having. Yeah, I like those. The the attrition was the one that I always go to is like, well, how many, you know, how fast is our revolving door, you know? And so, but I do like the one because it is something, and what I've heard when we're measuring culture things is like, well, we'll just know it because we'll feel it. And it is, it is true. It's like, it's kind of like you just, you can you know it when you see it type of thing, right? And you feel it. But I like that question is like, would you recommend work? That's a huge, that kind of gets to that. You know it when you see it. If people are recommending working here, would you have your friend work here, right? Or tell somebody to work here. I like those. Good. Sorry, I, I, I had thought about that earlier. I didn't mean to get sidetracked, but let's go to the maintaining phase because that's where I get stressed out. It's like, how do we, because if, if you did it right, it should almost be, like I said, you got the right ambassadors, you're doing the hiring right, right? And when you're doing the hiring, you're hiring to these cultural or these character character uh, traits, and you're yep. defining the responsibilities. It should almost be on autopilot, right, in a sense. I mean, but, man, I, this is the part. Well, like, how do you keep it from going sideways? Yeah, and this is this is where a lot of uh, culture efforts do go sideways. They, um, If you're not maintaining it, uh, the change that you had that put in place, it's easy to you know, go back to the old methods. Uh, so the maintain phase, I think, is one that uh, is critical, but unfortunately gets ignored. Um, you know, it's also important to say for me to say you're never really done with culture sure. change. Um, you know, and I even end the book with that note. You know, the, there are certain companies out there like Microsoft, for example, you know, that I used earlier. Um, they will tell you, oh, we've got a lot more to do. Even though we've been wildly successful, I like that. Uh, you know, you never de- declare victory in culture change. You know, we uh, we're constantly working at it. Or a software company that I, that I highlighted, Workday. Um, you know, they've got the same attitude. And so, because of that, we um, we set up a website. It's at culturerenovation.com, where we want people to uh, continue the dialogue, but also. Uh, give us some of the tactics and, and uh, practical things that they're doing that have worked. We know there are some out there that aren't in the book because we couldn't fit them all in the book. <laughs> and so we want to make sure that, you know, people are sharing uh, what is working. And we're, we've got a newsletter that we're going to put out once a month now that the book is out that will, you know, bring some of those to life. But back to the maintain phase, you know, there are um, certain talent uh, practices that you can use to make sure that the culture change is sticking. And we talk about the importance of onboarding. Uh, Onboarding new employees is no longer a, you know, two-hour exercise where you just get your, you know, laptop or you get your badge and, you know, the the bathrooms are pointed out to you. Uh, Onboarding today is much more about a lengthy process of establishing the right relationships inside the organization. And top companies do a great job at that. They focus on 
who is going to help make you um, successful long term and how can we establish your network of those people inside the organization? So that that's one of the first steps in the maintain phase. I, I like it. I, you know, because and to me, I guess the onboarding thing to me is and I like how you said a lengthy process. I, I think about those organizations that I worked in that have been cultures that I love being a part of. You, you, again, you just didn't get the badge and said, here's the bathroom and here's your cubicle. It was like a week long deal. Like, this is what we believe, you know, and the, it, it was historic, you know, because there was storytelling, going back to your storytelling example. This is what you're part of. This is what you're walking into. And this is why it's important. You know, this is a unique thing. You're a part of this now. And this is where you fit in. The Marine Corps did that to me. You know, they do it to everybody. Like, hey, you're part of this legacy. Look at all these, you know, you're part of that now. And, um, and then when we hired, it, there was a huge emphasis on the HR side from the, the hiring side, making sure that the, we were hiring character. We weren't looking at you know necessarily talent. We were more concerned about character traits as opposed to experience levels. Um, that's when I started to see that. That's to me those are the big maintaining things. But you go into a lot more detail in the book that that I found refreshing. You know, um, so many things I never even thought of. The, the the talent mobility piece, increasing the focus on talent mobility. And explain that. I mean, are you talking more of like, you know, making sure that when you bring somebody in, to me, it's kind of like you're hiring for the, you know, it's the care thing. So I can, you know, I'm not just hiring for a specific position, right? Well, I, I love um, talent mobility because it's a trait that top companies uh, utilize very well and low performing organizations ignore. And maybe the easiest way to think about it is we have lots of managers out there who have good talent, good people working for them, and they hoard yes. that talent. Mm-hmm. They don't want anybody else to get their hands on these great people that are in my group. And it's you know it's it's understandable. It's human nature. If somebody's making me successful, making me uh, productive, and my group productive, I want to make sure I, I hang on to them. Uh, but it's ultimately somewhat destructive to the organization um, and even to those individuals. And so talent mobility is the process of recognizing and rewarding managers uh, who move talent around the organization and measuring you know, how that talent is moving, being promoted, uh, or just moving into you know, different divisions, departments. There's a lot of um, great collaboration and communication aspects to that, you know, where you've got a lot more cross-functional expertise inside the organization. But a funny thing happens to those talent hoarding managers. Once they become known as uh, someone, a guy or a gal who gets people promoted, moves their careers along, they suddenly become talent magnets, right? Everybody wants to go work for that person, right? They're going to advance my career. It's a very, very healthy thing in companies, but, um, Frankly, uh, you know, the majority of companies don't track this. They don't and, and they're not doing enough to encourage it. So this is my call out to uh, to companies. <clears throat> you've got to you've got to really um, reward and recognize managers who are developing and moving their people around, particularly their good people. Yeah, that's why I wanted to bring that up, because I, I've seen that, too, in the real, real world is like when you you become known as someone that develops and gives opportunities you start attracting some really high performers and it's the same thing about knowledge, right? I'm going to hold it. The more that you share, the more, the more you let go, the more you gain type of thing. Right. And everything. I love it. Well, I think, I honestly think Kevin, this is one of the best playbooks that I've seen in a long time when it comes to um, culture renovation or culture. I think you did a really great job and it's just, I love how it's laid out. It makes it simple 
and I don't know. I just I haven't. I was trying to think about this the other day, where I don't think I've read a book on culture that has been laid out in playbook fashion. And I don't think ever, to be quite honest. I mean, well, that's good. Neither did I. <laughs> but uh, you know, that's that's what I think people are were really looking for. Is you know, mm-hmm. how, I get the importance of this. You know, and if you don't, there's a lot of good data in here that will make you understand the importance of it. But now it's about how do I do it? You know, what are the steps to take to uh, to actually make this happen? And uh, you know, I'm proud of the fact that my research team, you know, came up with so many great research backed. Uh, you know, steps here that we could put into a blueprint that people can follow. Yeah. And that's why I need guys like you, because I'm not, I'm not a data guy and I rely on HR professionals like you to, to, to do the the dirty work and the hard work to lay it out. And that's what I did appreciate about this book. Because a lot of times books that have a lot of data, I get turned off by, but this one I didn't because what I think you did a great job of was the, the humanization side of, of, this. I mean, to me, it's more of a humanization book than it is a data book. The data kind of supports the value of rehumanizing work, if that makes sense. That's how, that's yeah. kind of my take on it. Well, and it's, it, it, for your listeners, it's chock full of stories. Yes, so you'll, tons of stories. You'll read story after story after story, and uh, it will help bring that data to life. Yeah, it's a great book. The book is Culture Innovation, 18 Leadership Actions to Build an Unshakable Company. I think it's just, it, this needs to be a go-to for anybody that's in an organization or, or fascinated about this stuff, it's, I know it's going to be a go-to for me. Man, it's just great stuff, Kevin. How As we wrap up here, we've talked here for about 45 minutes. Is there something that we haven't talked about? I mean, we could talk for four hours about all the 18 steps in this book and great examples, but is there anything that you, you didn't get across that you want to get across here in the closing minutes? You know, I, I just think in the times we live in right now, Richard, um, during COVID, most companies have had their cultures impacted uh, from it, like it or not. You know, you, you've had some impact to your culture. So the question is going to be, do you want culture change to just happen to your organization or do you want to be proactive about it and, uh, you know, start to shape that culture in the direction you want it to go long term? Uh, so I, you know, I just encourage organizations to you know, really understand what the culture is today and, you know, how has it changed? What do we want it to be going forward? Well said. How can people connect with you and reach out to you? Yeah, I think the best way is through that website. So culturerenovation.com. That's a website dedicated not only to the book, but we've also put some tools, uh, other stories and case studies that aren't in the book out on that website. Uh, That section where you can share your own story that I mentioned. Uh, There's some surveys too. So there's a number of different things that are around this particular topic. So go out to culturerenovation.com to check those out. Great work, Kevin. Great conversation. Thanks for coming on the show. And I, I, I hope to stay in touch and love to have you back sometime in the future. Happy to do so. Hey, thanks so much for tuning into the show. I hope you got some value out of this episode. If you did, please do me a huge favor. Tell somebody about this show. Tell your spouse, tell your kids, tell your coworkers. Let them know about the value that Dose of Leadership brings to your world. Go to doseofleadership.com. You can learn more about my services. If you're looking for somebody to speak, teach, or coach about leadership, I'm your guy. I'm known for my ability to transform individuals and organizations, teaching them the concept of creating a culture of decentralized leadership. I do think that is the secret sauce to facing all the challenges that we face today. Thanks so much for tuning into the show. I look forward to the next time we work together. And until the meantime, make it a great one.